I'm starting to learn Python because I thought it might be a useful thing. It is a useful thing. What's your use case? You got any ideas? Well, I think that's the best question of them all. I don't have a well-defined use case, but what I'm what I've been looking at this week is what are the general use tools in the world of, you know, what we're doing that might be good to know even just a little bit about. So have just a base knowledge about Ansible, for instance, have a base knowledge about Python, have a base knowledge about Git, because I think Git is fabulous. I'd like to know a little bit more about it, but I don't have an everyday use for it yet. But how do you build in an everyday use for it if you don't even know what it's capable of? So it's more of like a dipping the toe in and seeing what it might be able to do for me. And Python seems like an easy place to start. It's useful for a bunch of different types of problems. It's relatively easy to learn, it seems. And Wes has like tons of advice for that. So he and I were going off yesterday with, he's like, oh, you should try this too. Oh, and if you need a REPL, oh, try this REPL. It's really great. And we, yeah, he's such a great resource. So anyways. That's great. Yeah, that is great. Even if I do nothing with it, this whole process is fun. <laughs> I encourage this. I think that is really great. I think just getting a base understanding of that kind of stuff is really, is super beneficial, kind of get a better understanding of the language too. Yeah. And you never know when you're going to come across a use case for Python. Last night, I was reviewing different applications to extract information from the Starlink dish. And there's a huge Python library somebody's created that essentially handles all of the interfacing with the dish. And you just pass this thing a simple request. And that Python library does all of the complicated backend communications to Dishy. And, you know, there I am just randomly looking at tools to pull off, pull off stats. I'm, you know, going down a Python rabbit hole. So it happens all the time. Well, and that's kind of what I've noticed is that um, a lot of these like do-it-yourself kind of micro hacks, maybe I'll call them, tend to be written in Python because it's just like seems like it's relatively easy to get into. It's extensible, obviously, which you were just saying someone wrote a module for it. And uh, and it seems pretty ubiquitous depending on the types of problems you're solving, whether it's, I guess it's used a lot in the gaming industry quite a bit and uh, also in machine learning stuff. So um, Everywhere, dude. Everywhere. Everywhere. Well, Ansible on the back end is Python. So I thought, well, geez, like some of the best tools out there are using Python to do things. So maybe I can get a basic understanding of it just to, um, but I do now that I'm talking about it with you, which is always helpful. I'm noticing a trend in these things I'm trying to learn, which is automation. Ansible has a way of automating things. Python is a way of automating stuff. Git can help you automate a bunch of things. So maybe that's where I'm headed. I could see that. I could see that. It's a good area to get into. It's a bigger and bigger area as infrastructure gets bigger. And bigger. I think personally, even I'm just getting tired of re- remaking all my infrastructure from time to time. So yeah, there's that too, huh? Yeah. Well, the whole NixOS challenge, you know, uh, changed my way of seeing the world. Office hours with me, Chris. Hey, welcome into the office. Make yourself comfortable. Twice a month, I open the doors up and I let the people in. And of course, Brent. He's always here, too. He's got himself his own little seat. Hey there, Brent. Well, hello. That's cozy in here this week. I appreciate you making it cozy. Well. You know, you take the time, you light the fire, the stuffed animals are a nice touch. Is the bunk bed a little bit too much? No, man. We'll take a nap after the show. I think it's going to be great. All right. So I appreciate it. We got a packed show today. In fact, I just kind of decided to just, I just struck a few things from the, from the show notes. Just had to make room. I had to make room. 
because I wanted to start with your recent experience about trying to improve your network connectivity because you're out in what basically would be the idyllic scene setting for like a movie that takes place in the mountains with beautiful scenery, just gorgeous, gorgeous atmosphere. But unfortunately, kind of tricky for high speed Internet. And that is a constant thing that we're we're battling with. And so you did some uh, what what some upgrades? I think you better start from the beginning and, and kind of explain to us how you get connected to the Internet and then tell us what you did to fix it and upgrade it. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So just picture a little cabin tucked away somewhere in the Canadian Rockies. And I'm living on a property with my brother. So he has a house maybe 100 paces that way. And so the way we get internet is, hmm, it's like Starlink before Starlink came. So there's a tower on the mountain that you could see out in the field over there. So we get wireless point-to-point connectivity, line of sight kind of stuff to the other mountain on the other side of the valley. Now, is this a, it's a like an actual WISP, a business, or is this like an acquaintance? It's a business, thankfully. Uh, they were recently bought out, so there's a lot of confusion on their end as far as which customers should be getting what. Luckily, that's playing in our favor in this case. But they've just basically forgot about us for a long time. <laughs> and so when I moved here, I thought, oh, geez, I'm used to like fiber is what I used to have. And uh, so I knew it would be a compromise being here. And it was okay. Like I could do most things. It's not the first time I've lived in the middle of nowhere trying to run off cell signal or something like that. Um, The downside, I think here as well, is that my cell reception is equally bad. So it was fine. Everything was fine. We were doing all of our shows, Chris, through audio and everything seemed fine. And then uh, a few weeks ago, we decided to jump to doing some fun video stuff. And that's when I think we really started testing my network because uh, it didn't really have to work very hard before. And now it's really cooking. And I came to the realization that my network just wasn't going to cut it. It was fine in the evenings to like, you know, stream TV shows at like 480p or something. But this is not good enough, I think, especially when I'm now uploading a bunch of video to you and my upload is like a tenth of what the download is. So it was a pretty, pretty bad shave. So it's been about two years that my brother and I have been wanting to perform upgrades because the little dish that's hanging off of his roof, when the installer put it in, they did an extremely bad job. Oh, go figure. I'm going to describe it to you and you can feel badly for me. So the tower is on the west side of the house, but the dish for some reason was placed on the east side of the house because that was the easiest way to lay out cables on the exterior of the building. You know, these installers, they just drill holes in your building and they just run wires wherever they want. But also the the mast that they placed the dish on was just too short for the like the incline of the roof. So the, the dish itself was actually pointing at the metal roof, trying to reach the, uh, basically the, the, the mass that's on the mountain over there, but it couldn't aim low enough because, you know, there's a valley between us. It couldn't aim low enough. So it was like bouncing off of the metal roof to try to get signal. You were never going to get what you were paying for ever with that. No, no, not even close. And we knew that. We knew, okay, this is a terrible setup. It can only get better from here. But we, you know, you got to climb on the roof. And we had to come up with a way of extending the mass as well. So it took us about two years to 
have a great enough reason to do that. And thankfully, JB toying with video was the the reason. And so we got on the roof the other day. (laughs) We got on the roof the other day. Well, got on the roof the other day. And uh, luckily, we had thought about this and had some parts. So we bought an extension to put on the mast. And when I moved to this cabin, it had a... Do you remember satellite dishes? Everybody had them to get like fancy TV back in the day. Well, there was one hanging off this cabin. And so I was able to take the mast from that, get a grinder, cut it in half, and just take the vertical section of it. And we had a union and connected that to the existing mast for the internet dish. So we were able to raise it about two feet, which is great. But, you know, this is a really sensitive piece of equipment. You just can't just take it off, throw it on, and expect it to be pointed at the right place. It's very, very directional. So luckily, we were able to call the WISP, the ISP, and got the best guy on the phone ever. It was like some surfer dude guy that's usually out in the field making, doing installations and stuff. And he's just like, hey, how can I help you? He's like, oh yeah, I'm usually in the field, but I just happen to be in the office today and nobody else is around. And so I could totally help you guys if you want. Like, uh, what do you need? Like an hour of my time or something? Is that about what you need? (laughs) So it was great because he, as an installer, could totally visualize exactly what we were doing, you know, hanging off the roof, trying to trying to do all this stuff. And he could guide us and be like, no, 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 just do, you know, let's let's use this method to try to point the satellite and stuff. And and the other great thing was that he was able to give us in real time the signal from their antenna on the mountain. So instead of us, you know, trying to do speed tests or something from here to try to get that data, he was able to give it to us real time. So it was amazing. He basically gave us a baseline, which is the internet connectivity that we had previously. And he gave us, he's like, okay, we measure a bunch of stuff, but it kind of combines it into like a quasi score. And he said, basically, you're getting like a one out of eight score. And if we go to a new install to try to see if it's possible and we get a one out of eight, we don't give those people service because they're not going to be happy with anything. So you guys have been running on like our worst coverage for years. And anything we do can just get better. Wow. In terms of speeds for our baseline, during the day was the best because the tower wasn't, um, I'm probably the only person using the tower during the day. At night was worse because, you know, everybody's doing the Netflix thing or something. So during the day, I was probably getting like 15 megabits down and maybe one up. But in the evenings was actually the worst because the stability went way down. We couldn't even watch videos of 480p sometimes, like depending on the weather and stuff like that. So he said, anything we do is just going to get better. So luckily we, you know, my brother and I, we got on the roof and extended this thing and called Surfer Dude back and he helped us turn the dish and get it all optimized. And now, now we have an eight out of eight signal. Whoa. Which is fabulous. Well, we have, I, we, we could see the tower over there and that's how we knew it was pointed our dish wasn't pointed very well, right? I was like, well, actually, it's over there, and it's totally missing it. Um, so we have a very good line of sight. We just didn't have the right setup to take advantage of that. And so I think we're doing far better now, you know, despite my getting on the roof and hanging off my fingernails for a little bit. Um, I didn't get any. You asked me, like, oh, try to get some audio because it could be really great. And he would have been awesome to have a little audio bite of. But I got to say, I was 
feeling busy on the roof doing stuff and I didn't quite get a chance to, to grab some. So apologies for everyone there, but you can use your imagination. So I will say um, now our speeds aren't way, like they're not magnitudes better. So I'm getting like 25 down and two up. But Surfer Dude says that's pretty much their limit, which actually we're not even subscribed to that. So he said like, because because there was a buyout. You guys are kind of like grandfathered in. You're not supposed to be on that plan, but I'm just not going to touch anything. So as the installer, he was like, I'm not going to send you to sales because they're going to catch that and they're going to change things. So I'm just going to leave it like that. But he did say the difference for you guys now is going to be priority. So he said the way it works is that if you have one out of eight signal, you're on the bottom of the list for priority traffic. And he said, now you're one of the best signals on that tower. So you're going to get the best priority out of anybody connecting. And that's exactly what we've seen. Super stable at any time of the day. So I think uh, it was totally worth it. Wow. That's interesting, too, the way they prioritize it, depending on your signal. Because in some ways, you'd think the people with the weakest signal would need the most help. But nice work. You know, those things, it's like a lot of work for a an improvement, but not like a complete solution. Right. And of course, the tricky thing, too, is you can do all of that work make your connection really solid you know your now your connection to your wisp could be as ideal but then there still can be issues on the land side or on a wi-fi side that have to be worked out because any kind of remote constant communications like i'm sure people that are doing work from home have experienced this i know i did wi-fi issues can 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 really plague you even with a good internet connection i was working at a cloud guru when the very beginnings of the work from home lockdowns started it was super common for the first few months that you'd always have somebody who just joined the video meeting who had really bad Wi-Fi because they hadn't they hadn't been doing Zoom calls from home on the regular like people who typically work from home had who had their whole setups already figured out. All of a sudden, you had all these folks that had done all that stuff from the office now all of a sudden having to do it from home and they just found out that even though this is something that happens over and over again, they were paying for like this great Internet service. They had horrible Wi-Fi and they kept dropping off the calls. Right. They're not even taking advantage of it. <laughs> well, and this is true for my neighbor, too. She she pays Comcast something like 80 bucks a month for her Internet. I was over there and her Wi-Fi, her, her router just crashed and rebooted. And, of course, her her phone or, you know, whatever, just automatically connects to the next open Wi-Fi. Well, that's her neighbor's ring camera that's waiting to be upset, <laughs> waiting no to be set way. up. Yeah. So her router crashes, then her phone connects to the next open Wi-Fi AP, which is a ring device just waiting to be configured, and then she doesn't get any internet even once her router comes back online because her phone doesn't switch back. Oh my goodness. Uh, She's like, oh yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, For how long? That's for as long as I've had it. Yeah, I'm like, okay, (laughs) all right. That is crazy. I just couldn't, right? But it's funny you're, you're messing around with all of this because not just last night. I went down the rabbit hole of figuring out an extension pole and suction cup mounts and all kinds of twist mounts to, to tie, a, you know, a thing to a pole and 3D printed Starlink adapters because I've decided I'm going to attempt to install my Starlink via an extendable flagpole from uh, Harbor Freight. It's a 20-foot extendable flagpole. And then I will attach industrial-grade window suction cups to that and and suction it to the side of Jupes with a, also a floor gr- a ground stand. I'm going to put the Starlink up over Jupes' roof that way. I've thought about different ways. I don't have a ladder to mount the Starlink to, which is what most RVers do. 
But in the process of trying to figure out what my options were for people who don't have ladders, I ended up discovering this Starlink for RVers Facebook group, which I haven't done a Facebook group thing ever, literally ever. Well, maybe not true. Maybe once ever. I mean, it's like I haven't logged into Facebook. So I had to go through this whole process of like recovering my Facebook account and identifying myself to Facebook and all of this just so I could get access to this resource. (laughs) Oh, it was the worst, man. (laughs) You're motivated. I was very motivated because I was really trying to put all this together so that way I could hopefully get it in time for Montana, you know, because I'm leaving for Montana in a couple of weeks. And we've never really had internet where we've gone, which has been good and bad. It's good from a turning it off for a couple of days, which I could still do just by not turning on the Starlink. But it's bad from like a running your business standpoint. So my thought was, is this will be the first year we go to Montana with Starlink. And I want to have a way to get it up above tree lines because you really don't want to have anything blocking it or you're going to have dropped packets. Anything. These posts just have like a lot of good information, including all these crazy ways that different people are installing the Starlink on their mobile setups and then deploying them on the roofs of their rigs and whatnot. Tons of inspiring stuff. So I got back on Facebook for the first time in like 100 years, and it was arduous. But I, too, have been playing around with poles and getting up on roofs. I have more to do, too. Well, you're going to have to update us on how yours uh, goes once you get to Bozeman, because I would imagine it would be pretty great if it worked great. But I would also imagine, you know, it's not tested and you can't really test it till you get there. So you might have to do some troubleshooting on site. Definitely one of those things. Definitely one of those things. Well, so I wanted to talk about our peer tube a little bit. You down for that? Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear all the stuff you guys have been doing. I, I know a little bit about it, but give me give me the meat. We mentioned it on LUP. We've we've relaunched Jupiter.tube and I'm coming at it with a whole new attack angle. So if you're not familiar, we launched this about a year and a half ago and then I shut it down. And I, I listed a bunch of reasons why. And back then I was trying to use it for each individual show. I was going to have a channel for every show, which needed an account for every show. And there wasn't a way to automate it. And uh, that was horrible. But now I've had a rethink and I've, I've decided just using it for live and special events or maybe a special one-off video production we do. Hedging for the eventuality when I shut down all of my Google accounts, but also giving us a decentralized media distribution platform. And that's something I've been focusing on a lot this year. Decentralized community with Matrix, decentralized value with Boost, and decentralized media now with PeerTube. I think this is a big deal. Plus, I figure with more people working from home, we should probably try to have a product that addresses that crowd. Somebody who wants to watch from their desk, somebody also who's probably been listening for a while and maybe would like to switch to the behind the scenes feed. And this has really just been part of something that we've been working on since I'd say the beginning of the year. It's decentralization, decentralization of everything that we can that makes sense. And so, uh, and I love, I like the fact there's no takedown bots. I like the fact that it's a free software stack. I like the idea that we have a place you always know you can go to to catch an archived version of a live show if you'd like, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but there's there's other motivations too. The podcasting 2.0 community is working on baking in live streaming into to apps and PeerTube might be some of the plumbing that makes that possible. So I want to be there for that. I think when you add work from home, when you add the decentralized aspect of it, when you add the kind of strategic nature of hedging against Google and creating an outlet that people know to go to over the years, and then the the long-term integration with the podcasting 2.0 apps that was pretty good motivating you know there's that was that was enough but then we got a really solid response from our community 
on helping us admin it and manage it. So I'm going to be creating a matrix peer tube room for Jupyter Broadcasting, like a JV peer tube room where we can kind of organize in there. And uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. So for those of you who are interested in participating, I think, you know, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Maybe opening this up to logins via some sort of OAuth or Mastodon login. Uh, we could talk about potentially limited community publishing of certain videos. I don't know about that. I, I don't know. There's a lot we could discuss. I'm willing to I'm willing to go there. But so we'll create uh, a separate peer tube matrix room, which we'll have linked in the show notes. I think we should also create a um, GitHub issues for our peer tube instance. That way we can track a bunch of stuff there. I'll add that to my docket if you think it's a good idea. Totally. Thank you. That would be great. I was curious because uh, JB has done video previously. So is that going to change the way we do things on the audio front by by chance? No, not this time. So that's probably the biggest difference this time around is we're going to stick to audio first production. All our release episodes are going to be audio. We're all still doing multi-track recording, multi-track editing. We still have Drew cleaning us up, processing the audio, mastering and mixing it, publishing it. All of that still remains. These are these are going to be more like behind the scenes feeds with just a little bit extra because for the first 10 years of JB, I did a lot of a lot of live switching. That's just sort of a skill set I have. So I can, you know, we can do live switching. We can show screens. We can do that kind of stuff without impacting the content of the audio show. That's a line that I learned a long time ago. You can mess up really easily. You can start referencing stuff. Oh, look at this, you know, and that kind of stuff. But we learned our lesson. You know, it's been, what, two years since the last PeerTube instance, JB PeerTube instance was up. I was curious if you've seen improvements since then, both in, I don't know, admin user interfaces and feature sets that are kind of tinkling your fancy, uh, but also on the back end. Are, are things a little easier or different or exciting in any way? Yeah, it was almost just about two years ago, and I think it was two versions of PeerTube ago. So some of the things that have been improved is the back-end tooling to import videos, import bulk sets of videos. That was a big issue of mine. And then something that I did differently is this is a live this is a live events and specials PeerTube instance. It's not a every show gets published there, PeerTube instance. And it's a lot easier to manage when you don't need like eight different accounts on this thing. When we deployed it this time, I was like, wow, this has gotten a lot better, both on the back end and on the front end. But geez, you know, it could just use a couple of features. And and one of them, I, I'd really love to be able to edit a video because sometimes we start a stream. There's 20 minutes of music. Now, not really 20, but there's 10, 15 minutes of music. And then the stream actually starts. Well, I could go I could go lop that off. Well, that'd be nice, right? If I could just go up into PeerTube and lop that off. And then the other feature that I, I, I really, after I deployed, I was like, God, I'd really like to have this is a permanent live URL that you can always go to and then the video is available on demand later at a separate new URL and PeerTube offers one or the other. You can, you can do a once live stream with a unique URL that's available later, which is what we're doing, or you can do a permanent live stream that isn't available later. It's like this URL and it's just, this is a live stream. It, it goes away after you stop streaming, but it's always at that URL. Well, today, as we record, version 4.2 of PeerTube is out, and they've added both those things. They've added live editing, so you can go up to an uploaded video, and you can set a new start time, you can set a new end time, you can even add an intro and outro to the video by uploading separate video files. You can even add a watermark to the video if you want. That's now in PeerTube, which is 
awesome. It sounds like you weren't the only one who wanted these features. And just in time, too. I updated today, and I actually don't see it in here. So I'm going to be playing around with that, because I guess I have to like find the studio mode or something. But sometimes I want to get the stream up and going, and I'm just putzing around in here for like a half hour getting the studio ready. It's not really anything that anybody... like. It's like a lot to slog through when you go to a playback, so I'm going to start probably trimming some of that off. Uh, then they've added some new stats, which will be interesting to see. Now that we're doing this, it will actually be interesting to get data on how much of the live stuff people watch. And they have fixed the replay permanent link thing. So now they're telling me I can have a permanent URL that never changes. And I can also carve out unique URLs for playback later. With this sprint, they've really nailed everything I wanted in PeerTube. I think you'll have to come up with some new wishes and uh, add it to their future requests because there's got to be more that you want. Come on. I would love our community, especially those that are interested, to dig into our PeerTube. I really would. I'd love you to go over there and dig into it and figure out ways to extract the videos, figure out ways to build playlists. And also, I would love to know if there's a way we could set up on-demand VPSs or maybe audience members could contribute some machine and we could set up web torrent seeds that could act as essentially a community CDN for live events. I think it'd be great. And yesterday I was streaming the WWDC 2022 event and it was rocking. PeerTube did so good. I was like very impressed. I was very, very happy. But we had one viewer in Israel and he, I think, was the only viewer in Israel at the time. And as a result, he got some stuttering. And if we could, if we could spin up an instance in his area or if he could have an instance going in his area that when PeerTube, when our PeerTube instance goes live, he participates in the web torrent in that area, then we could create a community CDN. And I, I think that'd be really powerful. So I'd love to have our community dig into it um, because PeerTube is an open platform and there's a lot we can build on top of this. And if we start building some momentum around that, I'm willing to commit resources to it. So we'll get all that going in the uh, matrix room on the new JB PeerTube room that we'll set up. I think it should be pretty exciting. And I like where this is leading, man. You know, a green bean boosted in boost seven days ago for a thousand sats. I've never run PeerTube, but I'd actually be quite interested in helping y'all put it to use. Stuff like this is super interesting. I just haven't had a use case for myself. If that resonates with you, like if you've wanted to play with some of this stuff, if you've got some skill sets, but you just don't like have a particular use case, maybe you can work with us on this. So check for a link in the show notes on that and then stay tuned to Office Hours for future developments. We'll have the Cooking with Brent series up there soon, right, Brent? Well, it's uh, a work in progress, but you, you know, you might find it there. I will say, uh, speaking of cooking, I know Wes was cooking quite a bit in talking about how he set up the PeerTube instance uh, on the latest Linux Unplugged. I think that was 461. He dove into sort of how you guys use NixOS on the back end, and I thought that was a really great conversation. So if you're interested more in how that was built, I think that'd be a great place to go check it out. That is a good plug indeed. All right. So while we're talking about podcasting 2.0, I have been trying out the various podcasting 2.0 apps. Love me some Fountain FM. And I recently tried out Podverse, which I like because it has iOS, Android and a great web client, really great web client. It has the value boosting built right in. It has some neat features like cross app comments and it has that live stream support I was talking about. So I reached out to one of the co-founders. His name is Mitch. And I invited him on into the office. So, Mitch, you and I just sat down. We started chatting. um, And I asked you if you were the creator of Podverse. I've been checking out the Podverse 
podcast app recently. One of the things I love about it, that's why, why I tried it out besides the fact that it's a podcasting 2.0 app, is because Podverse has a web client, which is fantastic, an Android client, and an iOS client, all the platforms, and they all sync up. And that got my attention. And so I started asking you, are you the creator, the founder, the the CEO? And you said, I'm a co-founder. And this has taken a ton more hours than we ever expected. <laughs> so let's start, let's start there, because I thought I read somewhere that Podverse kind of started as like a clips tool, right? It was going to be for making podcast clips, not a full podcast app. Yeah, correct. Uh, so uh, it's myself, uh, Creon, and uh, Gary. Creon is another developer with Podverse, and Gary does graphic design. And um, it originally was just supposed to be like a, a, a quick little project uh, to get me started learning how to program. This was like eight years ago. I was a, a big fan of podcasts and wanted a way to share it with people. It was like a very like isolated thing. It was something that was a big part of my life, but I didn't have an easy way to introduce other people to it. And eight years ago, there were not many options for sharing clips. So went down this journey of learning how to uh, write code and uh, create apps and uh, this. Yeah. So it's turned into something much bigger than that. Now it's not just a clip sharing app. We try to do every feature we could possibly want. Uh, that's one of the things though, it, for a good clip sharing app, it needs to be my primary podcast app. I don't want to be bouncing in and out of the app. So it ended up kind of just naturally becoming something much bigger than that. I hadn't thought of that. Of course, that would sort of be a natural evolution of it. It makes total sense. Um, and then I suppose the podcasting 2.0 stuff kind of came around just at the right time for an app at this size and this stage. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so that started about a year and a half ago. I think it was like uh, uh, September... Uh, 2000, boy, I don't even remember years anymore. The before times. <laughs> yeah, the before times. It, it all, it's all a blur with all the COVID stuff. Uh, I, I was just actually looking uh, in the community to try to uh, branch out and uh, find some open source collaborations. And I uh, sent an email to James Cridland of Pod News, and he sent me an email back saying, hey, there's this new thing called Podcasting 2.0. Here's a sneak peek. He sent me the, the, the first episode before it was released. And I listened to it, it was like, oh, man, this is exactly <laughs> what we're looking for, because we're an open source app, but we're like principles first in that respect. And we just want what is best for podcasting. Podcasting 2.0, it's, it's two things in particular. It is uh, the world's largest podcast database. It's managed by Dave Jones and Adam Curry. Adam Curry, also known as the Podfather, uh, one of the original creators of uh, podcasting. And uh, it's also extending the RSS spec, which all podcasts use, so that new features are possible in podcast apps. And this is really exciting if you are familiar with the podcast industry, because RSS has not evolved much at all, what, like 10, 15 years. And now that this group has come along and there's apps like ourselves and RSS hosts participating in this, we're finally getting some consensus and people agreeing on what features we can add and how we can add it to RSS feeds. Uh, for almost 20 years, people struggled to get agreement to get enough consensus to, to actually adopt these new practices. And it seems like it just sort of was a great timing of things where the application development process was at, where the podcasting 2.0 community was at. And correct me if I'm wrong, but 
really before the podcasting 2.0 spec, you had maybe Apple would create some random tags for their own internal use. And then you'd have app developers just kind of begin baking in support for those tags that Apple had just added. There wasn't any standards that had been announced or discussed or debated. It just where Apple led, people had to follow. Yeah, it was pretty much Apple and set all the norms and the industry just followed from there. Before Podcast Index came along, we had 50,000 podcasts in our database. Now we have over 5 million in our database. They do so much heavy lifting for us. We do we do a continuous syncing operation with their database. And that that work of just parsing 5 million podcasts, uh, that's a full-time job for multiple people in itself. And we get to leverage that for free uh, because it's an open platform. Do you take advantage of PodPing to update the clients of new releases? Or are you doing it through traditional RSS fetching? How's that work? So we sync with Podcast Index through API endpoints. We don't use PodPing directly, except for with the new live stream feature, where we do listen to PodPing directly. There may come a day where we are listening for all of our updates just from PodPing, but for now, if we if we listen to the Podcast Index API we get more than just PodPing updates. A lot of feeds still are not on PodPing yet. So we get all of the updates that uh, Podcast Index discovers. Uh, but yeah, like I said, we do listen for uh, live stream updates through PodPing, and it is a tremendous innovation because it allows you to send all kinds of real-time notifications to podcast apps. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing just more and more apps adopt that over time. I'm sure there'll be things to work out. But so I've kind of been, you know, sampling different podcasting 2.0 apps recently. And it's made me appreciate just how freaking hard it is to actually build a podcast app. And I think a lot of people, when they look at a podcast app, they think, how hard could it be? It's RSS feeds. It goes and gets the files from the RSS feed, and then it plays it using a built-in API. Like, how hard is that? But what I've discovered chatting with Oscar from Fountain and just kind of using these different apps is that this is actually a really hard problem to solve. And I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys run into? Is it like user expectation stuff? Is it like code stuff? What are the big challenges on creating Podverse? Maybe you didn't expect. Biggest challenges are typically just because uh, the content is all hosted by the podcasters themselves. And if you were to go through a platform, let's say like YouTube, which is totally centralized, they control how everything goes into it and how everything goes out of it. It's much easier to know what to expect as a programmer and how to how to code for those situations. But with podcasting, there's some self-hosting involved. And so there's different file types that might not work. Handling all the different conditions that you end up running into over 5 million podcast feeds in the world. Another problem for us is dynamic ads because we are a clip sharing. Like that's one of our primary features is clip sharing. And dynamic ads will screw up the timestamps in. So if, if I say, here's a clip from three minutes to five minutes in this show, and it's just a reference point, and then we send that to, in a link to somebody, if there's dynamic ads, it might jump to 30 seconds ahead or behind. Of course. Right. So how do you solve for that even? Can you solve for that? Uh, for now, we just don't. Dynamic ads are just not our favorite thing. And... To be honest, for some podcasts, it works great if they don't have dynamic ads. If they do, you still get an approximation of the clip. You know, we're open to to solving it in, in better ways. 
but we really don't ever get complaints about it. It seems like people just, most shows don't use dynamic ads and it's, that's such a big problem to solve. Uh, and like we would have to do our own like detection and we, we'd have to like figure out other people's rules that they could change on a, on a, on a whim. We would need a standard that we can follow reliably. Yeah, really would. You you would have hoped, you know, just a crazy idea, but you would have hoped a standard like that would have been created before dynamic ads, ads started rolling out. But this is the result of nothing really evolving in the podcast industry for the last 15 plus years. So on the topic of funding, I'd really like to pick your brain as a developer and as somebody who's implementing this stuff. What are your thoughts on the boostograms, value for value, and building an application on top of the Lightning Network? How has that whole thing gone? Value for value is very exciting. This is one of those developments that I didn't see coming with all of, you know eight years of working on this app until podcasting 2.0 came along. Yeah, it's, so it's the ability to send value. In our case, it's Bitcoin uh, directly to the uh, podcaster, content creator, as as you're listening. So we've been out of this uh, for a long time until recently. There's been other podcasting 2.0 apps doing this, and we only recently were able to get involved with it. Uh, through the Albi extension. It's very exciting to be able to support creators directly without having to go through middlemen. And yet Albi allows us a way where we as an app don't have to be custodians of people's wallets, which was a big sticking point for us that we want to be able to facilitate these payments, donations basically, or boosts as we call them, but we don't want to control people's wallets at the end of the day. We don't want to be stewards of it. That's just so far outside of scope of what we're trying to do as a podcast app. Yeah, I could totally understand that. So if I'm using Podverse to boost a podcast, does Podverse get a split in there to help sustain development? Have you guys talked about doing something like that? So currently it's it's voluntary. We do offer the ability to send a split. So on the website, if you are on a value-enabled podcast, which there's over like 6,000 value-enabled podcast currently. Including our own podcast. Including your own. And the wonderful podcasting 2.0 pod. It's actually an open source library that anybody can add to a website if they want. It's a, a web component. You just load a script through a CDN, and then you put a, a web component on the page, which if people are familiar with HTML, it's just a very simple element that you put on the page. And then it generates this form which then calls WebLN methods. There's a new standard called WebLN, and it allows browsers to interact with browser extensions, is how I think of it. So Albi is WebLN compatible, and that form is WebLN compatible. So if you have Albi installed on your browser, then that, that form will be enabled. It'll be able to send messages to the Albi extension, and then Albi goes ahead and sends Bitcoin to the creators. Fascinating. I've been wondering about Albi. It looked like maybe something that I'd want to check out. I actually installed the extension, but I haven't set it up yet. I really like the idea of having it on a web form. You know, some people just love their existing podcast app. They don't want to switch. That must be something you guys are constantly thinking about, too. People love their, some people, not everybody. Some people, you know, they're still using, like, the default podcast app. Ugh. Yeah. But, you know, some people have, like, made a real, like, conscious decision to switch apps what are your thoughts on getting people to you know entice them to try out podverse 
It's a really difficult problem, and I think I'm really bad at marketing. So I don't have a great answer. <laughs> you understand how people get entrenched in whatever habits, whatever platform you're using. It has to take something really compelling to pull you into a new app. I don't really have a solution other than that. Then we just keep trying to add exciting features, try to do things in what we think is the right way, where we're all free and open source software. You know, we don't sell people's information. Uh, we don't spam people and we don't add our own advertisements and stuff like that. So we're just trying to make the best product we can. And hopefully word of mouth will uh, take hold. That kind of raises uh, something I've been thinking a lot about lately, though, which is how it would be nice if our apps could uh, share data between themselves in compatible ways to make it easier for people to switch between apps. Uh, not just in like, I'm going from app A and now app B is my new app, but that you could bounce between the two. Uh, it's conceivable if we have export import standards between apps. But I, to my knowledge, I, I'm not aware of existing standards for that. So that is something I'd like to explore. You have support for OPML imports now, right? Yes. OPML is good for your podcast manual well it's your podcast subscriptions but what about your listening history like since we're syncing across devices a lot of people actually like the mark as played feature like we get emails about it saying you know if, it, if it's not working they'll tell us like hey i, I want to see which ones i've listened to already that was a big draw for me for podverse you know i'm listening in the car and then i get back to get down to the studio i want to finish it up on my studio speakers I like to play it on my desktop. So syncing between them is that's got to be an interesting challenge. Uh, I was curious too what your thoughts are on cross app comments. I see a couple of different trajectories in the podcasting 2.0 community right now. Some podcast apps are already just going all in with the lightning comments. What are your thoughts on cross podcast app comments? So maybe I'm on Podverse and I leave a comment and somebody's on Fountain. They leave a comment. In theory, no matter what app you're on, you'd be able to read those comments. Yeah, it, well... So uh, at least one version of it is very doable, which we've already implemented on web and mobile. So, yeah, the idea is a unifying thread. Like the podcaster has one thread in particular they want all of the apps to use, uh, which is a, a brilliant idea and very useful, I think, uh, rather than being scattered across 10 different comment threads. Amen to that. <laughs> the The part that I'm not sure how we accomplish is sending comments through the app so currently the way we have it set up is uh it'll render the 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 comments but if you want to leave a comment you have to press it and it'll open the web page that is where it actually is hosting the comment and i see it's doing a little it's like doing a little bit of thinking as it collects them too i get nervous when a loading spinner takes more than three seconds <laughs> hey but it was because there's a big picture in there that's why Somebody loaded up a big picture in their comment. I didn't even know you could do that. Yeah, so this is ActivityPub, which is like a uh, federated, uh, I would compare it to Twitter and people's common experience. Sort of like Mastodon's back end, right? Yes. I'm vaguely familiar with it because I know PeerTube uses that as well. So there's like a root comment, and uh, we just collect all of the comments based on that, and then we render them in there. And if you were to click on it, it would open that uh, Mastodon instance, and you could then leave comments through that page. So we have that set up with ActivityPub and also Twitter. And then, of course, the Fountain app's been experimenting with uh, Lightning comments, which 
I think I, I think activity pub makes more sense to me just from a technical standpoint, but I'd be curious to pick your brain on what you think about lightning comments. It doesn't really fit with what we're trying to do. I don't, uh, we haven't thought about it very much. I don't see the value added. If, if there's more demand from uh, listeners and podcasters, it's something we could explore more, but we're not really like a, uh, a crypto first app. We're a podcasting first app it just so happens that it's getting really easy to add these value enabled features and it's an exciting thing to participate in so we're going down that road i like it i'm glad you are i think that's a good balance to strike and i think bitcoin and lightning is the safer of any of the cryptos to enable so i think that was a you know it's a nice I'd say cautious move that uh, is really, I mean, my, the boosts I get, I love them, man. I love them. They're the, I've been doing this for 15 years and I've never had an interaction with the audience like I get with the boosts. And then the other thing that's really neat, and you may have noticed this as well, is I noticed a bit of a community growing in podcasting today. I'll hear some of the same folks boost other shows and then, you know, and I, I kind of get to know people through them boosting other shows and stuff. It's been really, really neat. What I love about what, you're, what you guys are doing is you've touched on it a couple of times. It's free software. Could we just expand on that just a little bit to kind of wrap us up? Why free software? What's the licensing? And um, are you ever going to make money at doing this if it's if it's all free software? Yeah. What well, hopefully, hopefully. Partly, I just love open source software. And it's like motivated me to learn software. It's hard to maybe explain. But just ever since I was a kid growing up in the 90s, I just thought it was amazing that you could create something for free and give it away all across the world instantly. It's just like one of the coolest concepts. I get it. <laughs> yeah, obviously you do. Linux unplugged, you get it. Also, uh, it's just, uh, we're trying to make software we really want to use and something that gets in the way of what we want to use is advertisements and tracking. And the perfect app in my mind wouldn't be closed software because what what are we trying to accomplish with that? Just make money, I assume. Like, So open source, it allows us to be transparent. People know exactly how our code works if they want to inspect it. So we have nothing to hide. And also people can make it better. If people don't like how we're managing our platform, if we make some sort of decision to remove content, for example, and people are unhappy with it, they have access to all the tools we have to start their own instance with it. I think it fits with the spirit of podcasting too. Podcasting is a mostly open platform in itself. So yeah, that that's the the primary. I just I love open source software. I don't know, it excites me. And there's also not that many great open source podcast apps. There are many open, but they're kind of like hobbies or like a side project, like a weekend thing somebody did for a couple months. Before this, the only one I was really aware of is AntennaPod, which is Android only, and it's a great app, but Android only. I'm not even sure what the leading iOS open source app would be. Probably Podverse. <laughs> maybe, maybe now. <laughs> I hope. I mean, I love it. You know, the only thing, if I could, if I as a podcaster could have anything I wanted from Podverse, I know this is going to be really crazy, but I'd love to be able to embed your player on my website so that it's a basic player on my website with all of the play controls that you guys have and, you know, the artwork display and the description display that they could expand. And then if they wanted to click into it, they'd just go into Podverse and be in the whole Podverse experience or something like that. But something I could embed on my page because we're looking at rebuilding our website and we're looking at what we want to use as our podcast playback when people just want to listen on the website. None of them are as good as Podverses, you know? 
Wow. Well, thank you. Thanks. It's funny you say that because it's like one of my top items on my whiteboard is embed. Oh, really? <laughs> Embedding is coming soon. Well, let me know. Let me know. <laughs> yeah. We saw uh, guys who have been promoting us a lot. They're doing, they're just been really nice. Uh, the Sleek podcast, they ended up embedding our whole webpage in an iframe on their site. It's like, okay. Go ahead. That's one way, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for something a little more low-key. No, no. We'll have a proper clean design for it. Well, Mitch, thank you, sir, for coming on here and chatting with me. Uh, I'll have a link to podverse.fm if people want to check it out. Of course, Office Hours is in there, and I can link to Office Hours, so I'll do that. That'll be in Podverse. Uh, what, what? I mean, what else should we, uh, anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to mention or anything about support or anything like that, just to let, you know, anything kind of open-ended for you to touch on before we wrap up? Not really. Just if anybody uh, has any questions or feedback, podverse.fm. We have multiple contact options through there. Also, if anybody's interested in helping with translations, we have a translations community and uh, we're trying to... It's, it's We have a, this nice setup that makes it really easy for people to just pop in and start translating words. And you don't have to translate everything, just like here and there if you translate some words and then it ends up automatically getting uh, making a PR that goes to our our repo it's called weblate i'm not sure if you've ever heard of it before oh i'll have to look into that that sounds really great it's really cool that actually makes it possible huh that's so cool also i should mention podverse is probably in your local app store you know go find it there app store android and f droid hey f droid good man i love to see that very good all right we'll keep up the good work all right thanks man A special thank you to Mitch for joining us, spending a little bit of extra time coming into the office and hanging out, and the hard work he and his co-founder are doing on Podverse. We'll have links to Podverse's main page, office hours in there, and also their GitHub, because it is all open source. So we'll have all that there. Hey, Brent, little breaking news here in the studio. Really? While we were, yeah, while we were watching that, I got a knock on the door. And who was it? That's kind of random. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I did not expect this, but it was FedEx, and they were arriving with my review unit for the HP Dev One laptop. That is impressive. Well, I know it's just a white box at this point, but geez, I, I kind of feel like this might turn into like a, a box opening uh, video all of a sudden. Oh, and I got I, there's a little note in here. There's a little note in here. Says, uh, thank you for taking the time to check out our Dev One notebook. Hope you enjoyed as much as we do. Looking forward to hearing what you think about it. Best HP Dev One and System Seventy Six. That's awesome. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious uh, what you're planning on putting this thing through. Have you thought about that at all? I'll, I'll you know a battery of tests just to kind of get an idea of what the heat and fan noise is like, and then a lot of just functionality tests. So uh, my buddy Mike on Coder Radio has had his, he actually bought one. So he's had it for a few days longer. And he did his his first impressions on Coder Radio, which came out on Wednesday. And uh, we talk about, after we talk about WWDC, we talk about his HP Dev 1. So I'll probably give some first impressions in Linux Unplugged this week, I would imagine. I would like to know, are you going to run just whatever came on it? Are you going to replace it as well? Uh, any Any thoughts around that? You know, I feel like I should always run it in the default config for a period of time and get a sense of the product. And so a lot of times, if it's something like this, because this is unique, right? This is Pop! OS 
on the Dev 1. This is Pop! OS on an HP hardware. Mm -hmm. This is a little different. So I feel like in that case, I, I am probably going to try to optimize the bulk of my review for Pop! OS. But I imagine in the last couple of days, I'll probably throw Fedora on there, maybe Nix OS on there, you know, that kind of stuff. Because it's all AMD in here, right? And my question is, is how much simpler does that make just trying out different distros? Because I suspect it makes it much simpler. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to uh, your review. Also, the pricing, it's about a grand. It's not unreasonable if this is a well-built, long-lasting, well-performing Linux laptop that doesn't make too much fan noise when it's under load. I could see this kind of being like, you know, when JB gets to the point where we're kidding out remote hosts like yourself, this would be like the recording laptop you would get. Because this would be so much better for you because it's, you know, so much newer and it's got GPU acceleration that would take care of things like the visualizing the audio bars that are probably being rendered by CPU right now and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to try it out. I'll let you know, I just it literally just came along with this in yeah, here. That wasn't in the show notes. I was kind of confused. <laughs> no, no, I'm just I'm just throwing it at you because I had a little knock knock. I got a message from Mike from Coda Radio that his review unit just showed up. So I thought, oh, man, I'll go check to see if. You know, everybody's getting there. So I'm sure all everybody who's getting one just got theirs. And also in the box came with the System76 launch keyboard and this HP 935 Creator wireless mouse that they seem to be really jazzed about. So that came in the box as well. Decking, or decking the reviewers out, I suppose. I think it's just one standard config for this. Uh, like when you buy it, if you go to buy it, it's just one config. There's no customizing. But then I, I guess the RAM is removable, supposedly. That might be something. I don't recognize those screw types, though. Oh, that's never good. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know how upgradable. You have to call your machinist friend to come design some screwdrivers for you. Yeah. <laughs> is that you? Uh, it, it could be. Yes, it could be. <laughs> is, that, is, is that Alex? Who's my machinist friend? Anyone local? <laughs> we need someone. <laughs> I need to know this guy. This is important. Well, that, that's very exciting. Let's do a few boosts there, Mr. Brent. Yeah, we got some great boosts. I recognize some names. You know, they're starting to get uh, very familiar here. Marcel wrote in seven days ago with 3030 sats, which I, I feel like there's a bunch of subliminal messages in those. 3030, huh? I see some down the line with equally obscure numbers, but who knows? Boy, this one's this one. I usually have a guess. This one has me stumped. Marcel has will have to reveal because I lit, I have no guess. Yes, please let us know. So Marcel writes. I know you all know this, but injected ads into podcasts are the worst. They're jarring and 90% of the time something I would never, ever be interested in. I've stopped listening to podcasts because of it. I know podcasters need to eat, which is why I boost and support Jupiter.party. I also support lame podcasting 1.0 shows on Patreon. I like how the JB ads are recorded by you or, and how they're different every time. I signed up for Linode for that exact reason. Thanks for not doing injected ads. Yeah, I've always felt like that's part of the value of our reads is that we do them and we we get like hands on with the product. I can't say I would never, ever, ever consider uh, dynamic ads because I, I heard from uh, the podcasting 2.0 pod that I think it was Podbean has supposedly created, supposedly created this system that transcribes the podcast. Then it uses some magic AI to figure out a natural beat to put a, put a cut. And then when it puts a cut in there, it underplays a little bit of a jingle as the, as the host was finishing their sentence, a little bit of a jingle. 
into the ad start, then the ad plays, and then a little bit of a jingle back, and it resumes where the podcaster was continuing to speak with with the music fading out. And then on top of that, supposedly, it'll even auto-update the chapters and split them into part one and part two so it doesn't mess with the chapter markers and stuff like that. I don't like it. I'll just be honest with you. The value, I think, is in the back catalog, perhaps, for some podcasters. So imagine a little behind the scenes here, uh, Marcel. It's uh, it's like we do these shows, and some of these shows continued to get downloaded for a decade almost. If somebody were to go listen to an old episode of Linux Action show, they'd hear a, an ad for GoDaddy in there, right? Now, would it make sense to slice that out? And instead put a, you know, a current sponsor in there. If it was a difference between the podcaster, you know, making or breaking it, maybe. I don't know. But I think it has to be done right. Maybe the folks at Podbean are starting to figure it out. The tech's still new and people just rush to it because it was, in my opinion, an easy way to make money on your back catalog. So True Grits boosted in seven days ago with 3409 stats, which I think that's a Tesla thing. I, I don't get the reference, but someone will fill us in. Says you mentioned on a live stream once that you were testing out PeerTube, um, the, and that tended to be generally behind, say maybe Twitch or YouTube, because of the peer-to-peer streaming nature. What if the live streams were actually streamed to PeerTube first and then sent out to YouTube and Twitch after that? Would that solve the problem, or would it just make it worse? That's a great question. Very on point, True Grits, with today's episode too. We are considering that, but probably not. I'll probably keep going to Twitch and YouTube until they stop giving me free bandwidth, which I assume is inevitable. My my dread, and I know this just sounds like conspiracy bacon right now, but my dread is that some Western government is going to outlaw encryption in some way and that it's going to create a horrible conflict in the free software community. And I'm going to fall on the side that encryption should be available to everyone, that it's a human right. And so I, you know, I could see a day and an age without me doing anything politically controversial, without me like, you know, becoming like the Alex Jones of podcasting. I could see the current status quo shifting to where maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, my stuff is labeled as dangerous or misinformation or something like that. Um, because I'm not, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking what could happen. I'm also thinking, what if one day I wanted to get down the road and not have a Google account, that kind of stuff. That's just been on my mind, you know? Um, but uh, so I think about until they kick me off, we might as well take the free bandwidth and get the free network effect. <laughs> and then what we'll do is we'll just do more stuff on the peer tube over time. We'll stream earlier over there where we can play whatever we want without getting, you know, kicked off like the WWDC stream or some special event or like, you know, cooking with Brent. And True Grits actually sent in a double boost. They wrote in to say that uh, they're still waiting on the LUP membership feed to support boosts. Oh. Chris, what's going on with oh. this? Can you update us? It cuts. Oh, it cuts. <laughs> it cuts. We're, yeah, um, it's in the progress. You have to. We have to build a bunch of tooling. Uh, so my plan is to start actually with the office hours and self-hosted member feeds we're working on and probably eventually code a radio member feed and make them boostable first. You know, once we get that kind of dialed in, probably transition. The older shows, but not start necessarily with the biggest and the oldest show. You know what I mean? Don't want to break everything first. I feel like Office Hours is the place where we get to play, and uh, often things might not work, but often it might lead to some great things. Thanks for the double boost, True Grits. Nev boosted in seven days ago, 500 sets. 
I think uh, the best part of the live feeds are the conversations you and the community have. For example, when the Libidwadia changes dropped and we're all complaining about GNOME, a GNOME contributor came in one day and there was quite the long debate, about an hour long between Neil and him. In my opinion, content like that should be available somewhere, even if it's behind a paywall. I often find myself commenting on the live feeds more than on the shows themselves. I specifically remember that episode. It was fabulous. Um, we kind of let that discussion go on because it was there was so much quality there. And I think did we did we do the show late by an hour because of it? Or yeah, yeah, I think so. And then it con- and then it continued after we wrapped up the show. It continued. It sure did. Yeah, the show was just like an earmark in that conversation. Um, but that is available to members, right? Uh, Jupiter Party. So if you are a member. It is on the feeds there, so that would be a good place to find it if you're looking for it. I believe the episode is fairly easy to find. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but um, you can use uh, notes.jupiterbroadcasting.com to uh, find when that was mentioned. Boost! Dylan wrote in seven days ago, 3500 sats. Great to see you so motivated on a new show like this. Excited to see more of Office Hours. Well, it's really because Brent keeps showing up. Let's be honest. No, I, I am very excited about Office Hours. I've been enjoying it. The one thing I'd like to expand on in the pre and post show is interaction with the Mumble Room and just asking questions about what's going on at JB or in the Matrix Room. But we're getting there. We can also do it through Boost. Uh, and so far, we've been doing this sponsor free. I think that'll probably change next quarter. But uh, right now, I've just, you know, we've just kind of been doing it to see it as a grand experiment. But I think it'll stick around. I've been enjoying it. And I really appreciate you guys boosting in, subscribing, trying to find it in the in fountain when you can't find it. Like everybody, I feel like people have been going above and beyond to participate in the show. So I am super grateful. Uh, our buddy Dave Jones came in this week. Boost. He says, uh, man, I'm loving office hours. I just started listening. What is open sats? So Dave, Dave boosted in 2,112 sats. 15%, uh, uh, 15% split of that is going to go to open sats. 15% of all of the boost to Office Hours and Linux Unplugged for the last three weeks have been contributed to OpenSats. OpenSats is a 501c charity that contributes 100% of the funds sent to their general fund, which is what we're doing. They send 100% of that to free software projects. And a big reason why JB is embracing boosts and lightning payments is because I actually believe this is a way through our audience, we can build a network of people participating in this payment system that will then be in a position to support free software when free software projects come online. And that's a big part. It's like this is like a five, six year pic, you know, picture that I have in my head, but that's where I see this going. And I think it starts here. And I believe OpenSats could be an avenue to that future. So I've We've been contributing for three weeks. This will be the last episode because this is the last episode of the month, by the way. And because uh, I'm going to be off the week that in two weeks. And so that's what we've been doing for the last three weeks. We've been giving OpenSats a cut. I, I love them. I looked into them. They look completely legit. You can also contribute to their operational costs if you like. But right now we're just doing the general fund. So it all 100% goes to free software. A lot of it in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Some of it, the best software in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And it's just been our way to contribute back to open source. And it's been nice. Like, we've sent some money their way, which I think is really great. You know, I did notice that uh, Dave sent in two 112 sats. And uh, if you're a Rush fan, that's one of their more famous albums. So I don't know if that was intentional, but, you know, send some love. I could see it being intentional. You'll have to let us know, Dave. The Golden Dragon wrote in as well. Big ups for boosts. I think that the split 
for OpenSats is phenomenal. Helping to fund open source projects in a meaningful way is always a plus one in my book. See you next boost. Thanks for opening the office. These are so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Golden Dragon. See you next boost. How about this one? Turquoise Fox boosted in seven days ago with 10,000 sats. Boost! And uh, the boostagram just says, fund the open source. Marcel wrote in again, double boost. By the way, cannot find office hours in Fountain. Tried with Chris and Jupiter Broadcasting, but uh, didn't find anything. Sorry about that. That has been tricky. I did contact them and I haven't heard anything back on that. Although then uh, I noticed that uh, Lima boosted in and said that they were able to find the right version of the show and send it some sats. Conflicting reports. I don't know, man. And for me at first, it wasn't showing up. And then I got a hold of the devs and told them, like, you know, this show isn't showing up, but it's in the podcast index. And then I went back immediately to like get a screenshot for them. And I searched for it again and it freaking showed up. See, Chris, I'm just curious if it if it wasn't showing up for Marcel, how did he boost in the show? You must have snatched this some other way. He could have been using Breeze. Oh, OK. OK. Or there might have been a boost where Marcel explained it and I missed it. But that's a good question. <laughs> I would like to know how Marcel. <laughs> right? A mystery. A mystery. Maybe we just passed the test. I don't know. Gene Bean wrote in as well. Another double boost. As a podcaster, at what level of sats per minute does the streaming of sats while people are listening become financially beneficial versus just a nice gesture? This is a fabulous question. That's a great question. So to be clear right now, I don't really see it as a replacement. I see it as uh, an addition because messaging into the show is a tricky thing and airtime is a very valuable thing. And so this has always been a balance that we've really tried to strike here on the show. And so this has been the first time when there has been a medium where somebody could send us a message from the podcast app while they're listening, and I would receive it in a web app that gives me a feed of people's comments, and here's the best part, I can't reply. There are times I would love to. I've even thought about trying to figure out how to sometimes, but the best part is that I cannot reply. I probably spend 20% of my working time, maybe even more than that really, managing, interacting with the community. It is a massive chunk of my job. And so to be able to have something that comes in that I can process as a JSON feed, that I can export as a CSV file, or that I can read in a web interface, and it's tagged with episodes, game changer for production, game changer for how I receive feedback. And I love how fresh it is because it's coming right from the podcast app. So I see this as a way to take something that has been sort of out of balance from the beginning of podcasting to balancing it now. Um, and I don't see it really replacing like memberships or sponsors forever, but I do wonder, you know, if there was like some massive economic downturn and, and sponsorships pulled back or, uh, or people got really sick with memberships and everybody just got membership fatigue. So we had less Jupiter party members. Uh, I could see that maybe over time people transitioned to small amounts via streaming sats, but uh, you know, spread across thousands of listeners, maybe it would add up. But I, I've never really done the math because I don't really see it getting there for quite a while. We're so early on this, right? There's there's really still so much infrastructure to be built. We don't even have yet a way to do this from like the website. That's all that would have to be figured out. I'd I'd like a way for people to be able to boost from the matrix chat room using a bot. All that kind of stuff. It's getting here. It's close. We're just not there uh yet. So 
I don't see it replacing anything yet. I love the idea. I suppose if I had any fantasy uh, about the future, it would be me living in my RV somewhere beautiful, off-grid with my internet-connected dish somehow, my my space dish. I'm living off of boosts because I would just live minimal, you know, quietly, just somewhere peaceful <laughs> where nobody was around, just me and my podcast, and I get on and talk to my internet buddies. That'd be fine by me. And every now and then I come into town, you know? I do that for spurts of time now. I think I think it's a that's a great question to keep in mind, you know, in the future of this development. You know, in a year from now, we should ask ourselves the exact same question. That's a good one to ponder. That is a good one. We also got a uh, thank you boost in from D- Dylan or Dylan. He sent 500 sats into Office Hour 3. That's actually a double. Uh, yeah, he was just sending a boost into Office Hour 3. Welcome me into the suspenders club. I am uh, I am rocking suspenders. It's funny as a man. There's not a lot of things people will comment on your appearance about, but like if you change your hair or you shave your face or or now I've discovered if you put suspenders on, it now becomes a, a topic of conversation that is socially acceptable, apparently, for anyone to talk about. I, on the other hand, am very uncomfortable about anyone commenting on my appearance at all. Right. Like I always find it very awkward. Like I, I find like I, I leaned into the hair thing. Obviously, that fine I just gave into because let's be honest, come on. But like the like the suspender stuff and the beard stuff, I always find it very weird. You know, it's very uncomfortable. A little bit of news before we wrap up, Brent. Check this out. You're familiar with Umbral? Oh yeah, you made me uh, play with it a whole bunch of times. It's one of my new loves of 2022. It is a personal server OS for self hosting with a brilliant app store, tons of some of the best free software out there. Plus, it integrates nicely in with Tor, so you can have things that are technically accessible remotely, but without opening a port on your firewall. And uh, it's how we do our Bitcoin Lightning node. So when people send in sats, it's landing on an Umbral node that's physically here in the studio. One bit of feedback that Umbral got, and I got it too, is, hey, I love that, you know, I can run my own Bitwarden or I can run my own Mumble server or I can run all of this stuff, but I don't really want to run a Bitcoin node. I don't want to allocate 500 gigs of disk space. And now with Umbral 0.5, which came out today as we are recording, they have extracted the Lightning node and Bitcoin node as their own components that are an app that you can install. So you can now install Umbral just as an app platform to run things nicely inside Docker. And then if you want it to be a Bitcoin node, you just install that app. And along with that, they've completely redone the UI. So they got a whole new look. And uh, they've now introduced the ability for apps to be independently updated without having to do a whole OS update like they had in the past. Before you'd have to update the entire image. Now they've broken that out. They've also got some credential management stuff built in here now. Um, very excited about this update, Brent. I feel like, again, if you've got a Raspberry Pi sitting around or something equivalent, this is fantastic. You could go get this going up in seconds. But I feel like they just they took it to the next level with this release because not only did they uncouple the Bitcoin and Lightning node stuff, which is, I think, something you should install, even if you don't use Lightning much. It's nice to just help decentralize the network. I love that kind of stuff, but I think it's smart that they detached that. And then the other thing they've done that's really smart is they've now got an official one-liner that you can copy and paste. You got to make that determination if it's safe or not for yourself, but a one-liner that you can copy and paste now 
and you can get Umbral up and up and running on any Debian or Ubuntu-based system. So it doesn't even have to be a Raspberry Pi anymore. You don't have to go do any weird scripts like I did. They've now got an official, simple, one-line install to take any Ubuntu or Debian-based system and make it run as an Umbral box. And then once you've done that, you get their platform for installing applications, managing them, and they, it is great. It is really great. I know you could just run stuff in Docker because you're a big shot out there, but this is so great. I don't often I don't often brag about like these things that let you. I'm not even a portainer guy. Like I'm not I'm not a web UI to manage your containers guy. But man, is this great! And I am big on sovereign data and bringing your stuff home. And I am big on decentralized computing. And I'm big on putting your stuff on your own land. So this has like Prism in there. It has Pi-hole. It has Node Red. It has Nextcloud. Home Assistant, Uptime Kuma, so many great apps, plus a bunch of stuff for the Bitcoin ecosystem and the Lightning ecosystem. So it just felt like a special day because we got a brand new version of PeerTube today. We've been talking about that. And we got a brand new version of Umbral, which has been in the works forever. And they all landed right as we were recording. This is just a huge step for both these projects. And for Umbral, 0.5 now marks the first release as just a general personal server OS. I feel like they're doing a good job of listening to their audience. We've mentioned a few times, you know, this is this is the second time in this show some project listens to uh, some of your hopes for where the project can go. But it does also seem like a little bit of a shift of direction for them, which I'm curious on your opinion of that. Um, you know, they kind of came in as the Bitcoin, you know, making your Bitcoin node easy to get up and running, especially on a Raspberry Pi. And now it seems like they're maybe I'll call it maturing or refocusing slightly to being sort of a, you know, run your great community Docker containers here. Oh, by the way, we also do Bitcoin and Lightning nodes. So I wonder if what you think of that. That'd be a good interview question. My sense of it would be they got into this market and realized what a demand there is for doing this right and realized that they could address even more people if they decoupled the Bitcoin stuff. And I think that's a clever insight. Um, and I think they're doing it in a way that isn't making it mm-hmm. any less of its original purpose. It's still it's still great as a Bitcoin node. In fact, I'd argue this is even a better way to do it now because now you can update that independently of the major OS. It's a tight line to walk. Uh, if we get an opportunity to chat with them, I might take them up on that. I think I think we should try to do that. It sounds fascinating. All right, Brantley. Let's see. Um, we're not going to have an episode. Uh, for this month after this. This is only one episode because our regular episode on the 21st that would be live and then released on the Friday the 24th, well, I'm going to be in Montana with the family, so we're taking that week off. But we'll be back after that. You can always check out jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for our live times. And of course, if you just follow JupyterTube, you'll know when we go live as well. And you can always hang out there. And of course, the show comes out on Fridays. If you go to officehours.hair slash subscribe, you get the RSS feed, and then you don't got to worry about it. It's true. Go get more Brent on Linux Unplugged. There's always stuff going on over there. I always appreciate that. It's very true. So true, Brent. How true is it, Chris? It's so true. It's time to close the door. Clear out, everybody. Office hours are over. Go on. Get out of here. <laughs>